Welcome to Poets and Writers. We're coming to you from WEHC 90.7, your college and community station here on the Emory and Henry campus. We're going to have a fine time today. Kathy Shear, an author of many books, uh, is with us again today, and her focus is on the disappearing small towns. Last time she was on the show, we talked about talked to her about the people of Dant and life in a company coal town. I just reread Blue Highways by William Least Heat Moon, and I'll tell you, if you haven't read that book in a long time, pick up a copy of it, because he talks about the disappearing small towns, and the title comes from The Blue Highways on the Map, and he goes from town to town and interviews people. It was written back in the 80s, so Blue Highways, I recommend it. Before we hear from Kathy, I want to remind you to send me a few lines of poetry. You know, I believe we are all poets in our hearts, and we write poems every day in our mind, but often we're afraid to share them. So send me a few lines to McCarthyHenry at Yahoo.com, and I'll consider putting them on. We've had some good poems coming in from you folks, so keep it up. Now let's listen to 16 Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford. My wife, I want to dedicate this to my wife's mother and her sisters. They used to sing backup to Tennessee Ernie Ford on WOPI in Bristol, Tennessee, and they lived down the street from him. So this is 16 Tons. It was written by Merle Travis, Merle Travis from Rosewood, Kentucky, but Tennessee Ernie Ford made it a famous hit. All right, here we go. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine Picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine I loaded 16 tons A number nine coal And the straw boss said Well, to bless my soul You load 16 tons What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me Cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store I Born one morning, it was drizzling rain Fighting and trouble are my middle name I was raised in the cane break by an old mama line Can't know a high-toned woman make me walk the line You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store If you see me coming, better step aside A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died One fist of iron, the other of steel If the right one don't get you, then the left one will You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe 
soul to the company store. All right, thank you for listening to 16 Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford. He made that very famous and uh, then went on, and some of you may remember Tennessee Ernie Ford on the I Love Lucy show, and then he had his own program. Quite a story there. We'll get back to him and talk with him at another time. As I've said, we're very pleased today to have in our studio Kathy Shear. Now, Kathy, let's return to Dant and some of the good times and the bad times. I know we talked about that last time. Right. Well, you're talking about small towns and how they disappear. We're talking today about the time when Dant was a really large town. It was the largest town in Russell County back at the turn of the 20th century, just coming into the 1900s. And the reason was it was the headquarters for the Clinchfield Coal Corporation. And back in the early days of coal mining, everything was done by hand. They needed a lot of miners. So the population in Dant around World War One in the teens was 5,000. 5,000. And that was due to this huge workforce. People came off of the farms in droves to um, earn what they thought would be a better living, to live in company housing. They came from Europe to escape war over there. They came from the cotton fields in the Deep South to get a steady income, what they thought would be steady. And during World War I, it was a constant stream of work and some income for the miners. But it was extremely dangerous. And um, it was a hard, hard time. So it was manual labor. It was heavy manual labor. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to be able to interview people who could remember back to those days when there was no machinery in the mines. And I'm going to read some stories from that time period. That's great. Go for it. Okay. This first one was told to me by Mae Culberson. She's talking about her husband, Robert, who was born in 1900 in Scott County. She said his parents came up here in the early part of the century when Clinchfield first started. They was six boys in that family. They put their boys in the mines. That's what they came for. You know, they didn't have the child labor law, and they could put them in there. So Robert, he went in the mines when he was 11 years old. Carbide light, it just a hanging. He looks so little, and he's little to his age. But they didn't have electricity, and they hauled the coal out in cars. I think they used mules at first. They didn't have the motors then. They had trap doors in there that they had to open to let the man that brought the coal out to get out, and that's what he did. And in the mines, they was rooms. He said sometimes he'd get lost, a little boy like that. But he kept on, and when he got grown, he was a motorman then all the time. He brought the coal out, and he come out clean, kind of, and the other men would be so black. You see, they went back in there and dug that coal with a pick and shovel. Wow. Okay. So that's uh, actually the origin of 16 tons, of course, was written in relationship to digging coal. And as we talked about, Kathy, not long ago, and in yesterday's paper, there was an article on um, mountaintop removal. So we were talking about a different kind of mining, and we were talking, you said 5,000 at one time were located there. Now, how many people live in Dant today? Probably about 800. And 
what do they do for work there? Do they work other places? And If they're young enough to work, they work other places. The coal mines closed down in 1959. Um, they can commute, of course, to other coal mines in the area, but most of the people living in Dant today are retired coal miners or their wives and widows. Well, I wanted to ask you about the term company town. What how would you describe a company town of that era? The company built all of the housing and rented it to the miners, and they would take money out of their pay, about $2 per room per month. And the typical house was a three-room house. And so for $6, you could get a kitchen and a bedroom and a living room and everybody lived in that small house. You also could um, buy everything you needed at the company store. If you worked in the mines and you loaded coal, then whenever you were paid for or credited with, a say, a load, a car of coal, you could actually run down to the store that day and shop and use whatever money. It might be a dollar a day would be all you'd earned, but you could use it right away. Well, I know that uh, there was a grant, I I read about it, and we talked about that briefly, that the old headquarters has been, they've received a grant over there just recently in Dant. Right, and they've turned, that was the second office building, that was actually built by Pittston, which took over Clinchfield in 1945, and People Incorporated has turned that into low-income housing. And you had a little something to do with that, didn't you, uh, when you started out over there? And I wanted to ask you, how did you happen to go to work in Dant? You had mentioned that last time. I was working for People Incorporated, and they... um, the county was under the gun to provide sewer system for the town. All those company houses were built with outhouses. And after 1945, when the union came in, the miners bought the houses and decided they would put in indoor bathrooms. But there was no place to put a septic system, so they ran the sewage pipes right in the creek. And in the 1990s, the federal government stepped in and said, you've got to put in a sewer for this town. So I was sent over there to meet people, go door to door, convince them that they were going to have to have a sewer, they were going to have to have a new bill, they were going to have to pay every month and to sign on. That's how I got there. Well, I want to back up just a minute. Now, the people who lived there... You know, a lot of of us have this concept that the people were working on a mountainside there, and then all of a sudden they were working in the coal mines, but a lot of those people were brought in. I wanted to ask you about where the people came from to work there. They came from, as I said, they came from Europe, and they came from the Deep South. The majority of them were local Appalachians. They were, the majority were. yes. Okay. Uh And... um, then you mentioned, uh, I, I also want to talk with you about the book that you're working on, which is Cleveland, which is the railroad town. But uh, do you want to say anything more about Dant and, and the work there? Yeah, I'd like to say some more about what the work was like, because I don't think that people today have any concept of how hard it was. Um, this little boy we were just talking about, he was a trapper boy. He opened and shut the doors, but he worked eventually, worked his way up to being a motorman, and that was high on the totem pole. A motorman drove the motor that pulled the cars of coal out of the mines, but the coal loader and the coal shooter were down on the totem pole. They were the ones who were working in the dust and, and the grime. They were the ones who were most likely to be killed. Um, There were a lot of men who died in the mines. 
with accidents. Nowadays, we might hear about a big gas explosion underground and several men die all at once. Many, many more men died from rock falls, one or two at a time, where they would just be smashed flat by the top coming down. I think you mentioned that uh, last time, and you said that basically it was kind of like sending in another substitute. In other words, they didn't shut the mine down. No, They kept working. And you mentioned child labor, so that was... How many of these, and this is a technical question, but would quite a percentage be 11 years old, 12 years old, 13? No, I'd say it would be very small working underground, but you would have a lot of young boys working in the tipple, which was where the coal was cleaned before it was dumped into the railroad cars. And so typically they would be sitting on wooden benches and the coal would be coming by them down a chute and they would try to pick out everything that wasn't coal, the sandstone or the slate or the mud. All right, do you have some more to share with us from your yeah. book? And the title of this book, Kathy, is... Memories from Dan. Memories from Dan. This one, one thing that worked well underground was the buddy system. And you, you didn't get any formal training in the early days. You went in with a friend or a relative, probably your father, and your buddy took care of you. He showed you what to do. This is a story from Emery Cook, and he's talking about his buddy D. He said, so I took D in, and I told him, now, D, you're going to have to be careful. This coal will skin your shins. Ah, I'll make it, he said. He just had on a pair of shoes, and we had on high-top boots. Well, they all started out with just shoes, but it wasn't long till they got something better. Every once in a while, he'd say, oh, oh. I said, what's the matter, D? His legs was skinned plumb down to the top of his shoes. The next morning, he brought a pair of boots. So he, he talks about loading with them and putting their check on there. Every coal miner has these little round discs. They're about the size of a quarter with a hole in them. And on that was carved their payroll number. And when they loaded a, a car full of coal, they would put a check right on the front on a hook. And so when it came out to the outside, they knew who to credit. And when you had two men working together, they would alternate. So you you, wait, you load one car, and you put one fellow's check on it. You load the second car, you put the second fellow's check on it. And they that's how they worked. Emery said, I loaded coal 16 year with a shovel. And they cut the shovel loading out and got that machinery. Then they had a drill that could go in there and drill the holes, and they had machines that would cut the coal. Then I was a timber man, and then the boss told me he wanted me to learn to run a joy, and a joy was a mechanical loader. So this man was there through all those years of transition, but they say that after World War II, when all the machinery came into the mine, for each machine that came in, ten men came out. And that was the beginning of the out-migration where people no longer were needed for this hard, back-breaking work. The interesting thing, though, is that you talk to these old hand-loaders and they said they absolutely loved working underground. As hard and as dangerous as it was, they loved working with their buddies. They formed a very strong bond with them. And I guess it was kind of like being in World War II because there was always that chance you could die, but there was somebody working to keep you alive. And they kind of miss it. They don't want their sons to go in, but they themselves loved it. Well, do how many hours a week did they work offhand? I know. Well, that would know. vary. Now, there wasn't any um, 
there wasn't any wage and hour law at that point that, that applied to them. These were all non-union workers until the union came in in 1945 and Clinchfield unionized. So they worked however many hours they were supposed to, according to their boss, um, in order to load coal in a certain section. But once the union came in, they adhered to the eight-hour law. So they had an eight-hour once the union came right. in. But before that, they might work 12 hours or they might work four hours. Okay. It just depended on what needed to be done that day. Okay. Well, you mentioned several people that you interviewed, and I think uh, I read on the Internet or on your website, you interviewed for this book, you interviewed up to 50 or 70, up 50. almost 70, 50, 50, 50 people. people. For this one. Right. And right. these are some of the individuals that, that you interviewed, and you right. just mentioned one. Do you have another right. one for us? That, do you yeah. have? Yeah. I've, got, I've got some others, and this is talking about the danger. Um, Hazel Cardi was talking about her husband, Ace, and she says, talking about her children, she said, their daddy was covered up with slate in the mines and a big rock fall in. The other men was getting away because the mountain was cracking and popping and coming down. But the buddy that he worked with told him, boys, I can't leave him. Columbus got him an iron bar, and somehow or other he had the strength to pry that big slab of slate off him and got him out. Columbus Salyers, I could never forget his name because Ace owed his life to him. And just shortly after he got out, the whole mountain caved in where he had been laying. It broke his shoulder and it bruised him some. As long as he lived, that shoulder would come out of place every once in a while. Dr. Elsie McNear just laid him down on the floor and put his foot on his chest to hold him down and pull that arm back in place. And I just couldn't imagine. I wouldn't let myself think of one of my sons of being in that. And then here's another woman who's... Um, husband worked in the mines. Her name's Lily Ruth Mabry. And I asked Lily Ruth, and I said, did you work, worry about James in the mines? And she said, was I worried about James? I had a father to get killed, two cousins to get killed, and on top of that, I had four sons working in the mines. Maybe I figured that's just the way they had of making a living. Wow. Kathy, we speak in writing. You know, a lot of people advise that we write stories and we tell stories, and that's how we write. So did you have any problem getting these people to share with you? Did you tape them and go into their house and sit with them? How, how did you do that? Well, I had trouble at first, Henry, because when I proposed the history project to them, they all said, we've not done anything famous. We're not famous people. We've not done anything important that we really don't have anything to that. talk about. And I said, you've done something that nobody else does today. You've worked so hard under such difficult conditions, and I want to learn about it. I'm, I'm a city girl. I know nothing about coal mining. And so I would bring the tape recorder to their home, and we would sit down, and I would ask questions, and they just it just all spilled out. you know. And some of them were just wonderful storytellers. One fellow, I have three hours of tape. Because once he got started, he couldn't stop. <laughs> and you'd have sometimes you'd have dinner with them, or they'd invite you to eat we, with we them. We did. Right. We did that sometimes. Yes. Yes. I. You know, I used to hitchhike this mountain from Winston Salem to Johnson City, Tennessee, and I would hitchhike across the Blue Ridge there. And I have many stories of getting stranded at night and being invited in to spend the night. And I remember one time I was riding an old blue motor scooter, and it tore up on me. And this family invited me in. 
had me for dinner, uh, dinner and stored my blue uh, motor scooter, and then I came back several days later and picked it up. But also, uh, Moonshiners, I had several rides with uh, those fellas hauling liquor in an old 1954, so <laughs> I, I do appreciate those stories. Now, are you got one more for us here about well, that? Or, yeah, I want to. I want to be sure and ask you about your other books. Okay, I, I've got a poem by Lou Crabtree. She was a a Washington County native. She never lived in the coal camp, but some of her family members did. Lou became a school teacher, but she loved writing poetry, and she was discovered by Lee Smith um, in her later years. Oh, that's great. I'm going to interrupt you and just mention that. I I don't recall ever having met her but i've heard so many stories about her and i remember hearing the story about how she would sit on her front porch and people would just drop by and they would ask her for advice and one fellow came by and rehearsed his uh, sermon for his funeral many times because he wanted it to be perfect he of course wasn't going to be giving it and also another person came by and he she i think it was a she had a problem with cussing and so Lou worked with her, and Lou told her it's appropriate to cuss or curse at certain times, but the way you're doing just takes away from the entire aspect of it. And also, you know, she was a teacher, but she also had studied up in New York and studied drama. And she, as you said, talk a little bit about uh, Lee, uh, Lee Smith discovering her, and then she started writing the po- was writing poems at She'd the She'd been writing, yeah. She took um, a workshop with Lee Smith, who is, of course, a very well-known Appalachian writer, and uh, Lou came into this workshop lugging this suitcase full of poems, and Lee thought, oh, no, another crazy person. And she started reading them and was just blown away by how wonderful the poetry is. I'll read this one that Lou wrote called Coal Mines. In a camp, a coal mining camp, that's Pa coming yonder, body black-coated, off the day shift, red eyes blinking, coming crawling home, body bent in half from sucking poison in a three-foot shaft, mine-cutting machinery made a long-lost toe, limping out of the mines tomorrow limping back in that's ma watching packing a biscuit in a tin bucket watching for a downwind so's to hang out her laundry thinking her hard veined hands like tree trunks clasping unclasping thinking because my 12 year old bro going in hoot owl holler going to work going to sacrifice his lungs to digging coal Kathy, now you mentioned you've also have a book on Cleveland, which is about railroads, and we haven't talked about that today. And I want to be sure to get a little bit of that in. What? Tell me a little bit about that town. Does it still exist? That that town still exists. There's probably about 250 people living there. There never were a whole lot more. But that town grew up around the Norfolk and Western Railroad line. It is just on the edge of the coal field in Russell County, and it. It prospered. It it um, was born because of the railroad and mostly because of farmers coming and bringing their livestock. It had livestock pens right at the depot, so you could bring your cattle, your sheep, and your turkeys, and and bring them down there and wait for the train to come to pick them up. Right, now, in your composition of the book, did you use the same process you did the interview process yes. with Cleveland also? Right. Right. And then you also have a book on letters or postcards. What's that about? 
Um, old postcards, it's uh, called Far Southwest Virginia Postcard Journey, and the postcards are owned by Frank Kilgore. He collects old postcards from Far Southwest Virginia. And so he had the postcards, and I did all the research behind them to find out what the scenes were of. These are of landscapes and particular places uh, in the seven coalfield counties. Well, do you have a story from Cleveland with us today or one that you can? Okay, so let me ask you this. Moving on from Cleveland, moving to Moonshining. Now, I noticed on your website that you are your next project, and I'm very much interested in moonshining because I did have some relatives who were engaged in that enterprise, shall we say. And, uh, well, we could talk a lot about that. But what, uh, what are you working on in that? Tell us a little bit about moonshining. I noticed you said that you could send in your stories with, in an anonymous fashion. Right. Well, I found out that, much to my surprise, even if you'd been a moonshiner, say, 50 years ago, if you had made a large enough quantity for it to be a felony, um, there is no statute of limitations. That the Commonwealth's attorney can still come after you. So I thought, well... Maybe I better make some of these anonymous. But the folks that I've been interviewing so far were actually, again, young boys when they helped their daddies and their granddaddies make moonshine out back. And um, nobody's going to be coming after them. But uh, it was something that certainly was made throughout southwest Virginia. Um, It was a way to get by. People raise a corn crop, and it was a much more profitable way to sell it as opposed to just selling the corn. It was a tradition that came over from Scotland and Ireland, and people were very proud of their ability in, and their their skill in the trade. It used to be legal, and then the government started imposing a tax, and you had to register and pay the tax, and that's where the problem came in. Well, Kathy, you certainly inspire me to come out with a book of poems seeing that you have your not only that but she, folks she has her own publishing company so kathy what's the title of your publishing company clinch it's clinch mountain press all right and she does have uh, jack kessner published you've published mm-hmm. some of his work so this is henry mccarthy at 90.7 your college and community station and I also want to read you a poem, if I might end today. We're not going to stump Richard. I know many of you stu- tune in today, but I'm going to save this question for Richard because I'm, you're keeping me on task here. So I've got a good question. We always, uh, generally, we ask Richard a question in terms of a poet or a writer. And so far, he's hitting about two out of three. So I've been impressed with that. Here's a poem that I like and I wanted to share with you today. The title of it, it's A.E. Stallings, and here's what he says. Why should the devil get all the good tunes, the booze, and the neon, and Saturday night, the swaying in darkness, the lovers like spoons? Why should the devil get all the good tunes? Does he hum them to while away sad afternoons and the long, lonesome Sundays, or sing them for spite? Why should the devil get all the good tunes, the booze, and the neon, and the Saturday night? So maybe you could send me an email and answer that question. Remember, if you have a poem for me, it's McCarthyHenry at Yahoo.com. And this is Poets and Writers. And now we're going to go with our song, our last song of the day. And this is a song by Johnny Cash. In keeping with what Kathy Shearer shared with us today about the coal mines, this is entitled Dark in the Dungeon by Johnny Cash. And it was written by Merle Travis. 
So here we go, and thank you. This is Henry McCarthy of Poets and Writers saying, I'm going out to write a poem. I'm going out to watch the children play. Do not wait up for me. Do not be afraid to stay or still away. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. So here we go with our last song, and thanks for tuning in. Oh, come all you young fellers, young and so fine. Seek not your fortune in the dark, dreary mine. It'll form as a habit and seep in your soul till a stream of your blood runs as black as the coal. Where it's dark as a dungeon, damp. As the view, dangerous double, pleasures are few. Where the rain never falls, the sun never shines. It's dark as a dungeon, way down in 